Dr. Samuel Myers studies the human health impact of accelerating disruptions to Earth's natural systems. He's a principal research scientist at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and is the founding director of the Planetary Health Alliance. Sam's current work spans several areas of planetary health, including global nutritional impacts of CO2, health impacts of land management, or impact of animal pollinator declines on human nutrition. He is the lead editor of the book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. Professor Samuel Myers, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. And as you have devoted your career to, uh, and the Planetary Health Alliance uh, recognizes that climate change is not just an environmental crisis, but a human health crisis, which is so interesting that you research the links between planetary health and human health. So what are some of your more compelling findings and what kind of indications do they give us on how to effectively move forward? Well, that's an enormous question. First of all, Planetary health has a slightly bigger frame than climate change alone. And so really the proposition of planetary health is that it's not only climate change, it's everything change. And so there are a whole variety of ways in which human activity is disrupting and degrading our planet's natural systems. And that certainly includes climate change, but we're also driving the sixth mass extinction of life on earth with enormous biodiversity loss. We're driving pollution of air, water, and soil at a global scale. We're contending with resource scarcity, particular fresh water and arable land. It changes in land use and land cover. So really we're transforming and disrupting all of our natural systems at the fastest rates in the history of our species. And those changing systems are interacting with each other to affect really the foundational qualities for human health and well-being, the quality of air we breathe, the quality and quantity of food that we can produce, water quality, exposure to infectious diseases, exposure to extreme weather events, even the habitability of some of the places that we live. And as a result, we're starting to see larger and larger impacts across every dimension of human health from nutrition to infectious disease exposure, non-communicable diseases like heart disease and stroke and certain cancers, mental health effects, and population displacement and conflict. The field of planetary health is really integrating the way our transformation of our planet's natural systems comes back to affect our own health and well-being. So when you ask, what do we do about it? Fundamentally, this is upstream thinking. If the scale collectively of human activity now exceeds our planet's capacity to absorb our waste or provide the resources that we're using sustainably, and therefore we're transforming nature, which is then threatening our own survival, the answer has to be to move all the way upstream and ask, how do we actually shrink our collective ecological footprint? And the way we do that is through deep, rapid structural changes in how we live on earth. And certainly in terms of the climate system, one aspect of what we call the great transition is 
shifting to a carbon-free energy economy, but we also need to transform our food system and become much more efficient in our use of ecological inputs to produce the food that we depend on. We need to embrace the circular economy and manufacturing so that we're more efficient in the way we produce goods. We need to rethink the design of our cities to optimize our mental and physical health, but to minimize our ecological footprints. And there's even a spiritual, emotional dimension to this and kind of rethinking our relationship to the natural world where there's been sort of a rupture in what's always been a, a sort of recognition that we have a certain reverence or awe for the natural world, but somehow that reverence has lost its authority in kind of guiding our decisions. And so how do we regenerate that? So there's, you know, really an enormous amount that we need to think about as part of the great transition. We could spend an hour talking about that alone. And some of the ways, as you say, you know, you studied, it's an immense project. I didn't realize. We now have 270 organizations wow. in 57 countries that are part of the Alliance now. And these are in the field studies. You're not just projecting. They're striking statistics like that you can measure now. I, I last read the 8 million deaths due to air pollution or, I mean, those are things that are just quite frightening. But the many other things, what's interesting, sometimes, yes, increased uh, crop yields, we think there's less famine, but, but then you're studying, on the other hand, the decreased nutritional value of those crops. That's absolutely right. And, you know, for starters, the proposition that there's less hunger, which has been true for the last several decades, is actually getting to be a shakier proposition. In fact, I just finished writing an op-ed about this because for the last five years, we've seen um, increasing numbers of people with severe food insecurity after decades of actually seeing those numbers trend in a positive direction. They're now turning the other way. And the question is, is that a harbinger of things to come? Are we now encountering so many sort of environmental headwinds to food production that even our crop yields are going to be falling and we're going to have a hard time providing um, enough calories uh, for the human population. But on, on top of that problem, as you say, there's another problem where I've done a lot of my own research, which is concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere rise in response to our activities, we're finding that higher levels of CO2 make our food less nutritious. So when we grow staple food crops like rice and wheat and soy and corn at concentrations of carbon dioxide that we expect to see around the middle of this century, we find that they have significantly lower levels of very important nutrients for human health, like iron and zinc and protein. And we've spent several years modeling how those changes in the nutrient content will affect the health of the populations of 152 countries around the world, most of the world's population. And we find that these changes are likely to push 150 to 200 million people into new risk of uh, deficiency of those nutrients, which has very significant health consequences, in addition to a billion or so people around the world who already suffer from these nutrient deficiencies and will experience further exacerbation. It's kind of an interesting story, you know, partly because the size of it is pretty frightening, but also because it's so surprising. If we had sat around having a conversation 
15 years ago and thinking, I wonder how pouring tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere will affect our health. The idea that it would make our food less nutritious probably would not have occurred to us. And this is a recurring theme in the field of planetary health is this idea of surprises that you know, as you start to change all the biophysical conditions on the planet at the fastest rates in the history of our species, you're going to continue to encounter surprises as these changes sort of ripple through the complex ecological systems that we depend upon. And we're going to find these kinds of surprising effects on our own health and well-being. And there are many examples of that. Yes. And it's not, of course, because they're so intrinsically linked, just our health uh, and well-being, but the pollinators we depend upon, you know, what are we going to do without the, the bees and the insects if they weren't such tireless workers on our behalf? No, there's no question. And that's another area that I have been doing. Um, quite a bit of research on, in fact, we just submitted our third um, paper sort of using yet another methodological approach to understand our global health reliance on robust populations of pollinating insects. And we used work that had been done by one of the world's leading pollinator ecologists, Lucas Garibaldi in Argentina, which shows that across experimental farms in Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, that about a quarter of the gap between the highest performing farms and, and the actual farm that you're studying, which is what's called the yield gap, about a quarter of the yield gap is from not having enough wild pollinators around. And so we used that sort of very robust uh, result to calculate, well, if there were enough wild pollinators, how much fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and legumes would have been produced, these pollinator dependent crops, how much would have been produced? And then we use what's called the impact model, which is a, the bioeconometric model, but it, it, it's basically a model of global food trade that includes what happens when the prices of things shift. We found out where those foods would have gone who would have purchased them and who would have consumed them. And then we used yet another database that looks at the health effects associated with intake of these food groups. And what's the health effect of having enough fruit, enough vegetables, enough nuts and seeds in your diet. We've calculated that there are about a half a million excess deaths a year around the world today because we don't have enough wild pollinators. And when you imagine what the world will look like in 2050 with 10 billion people and a lot of recommendations that we increase our consumption of these kinds of foods, like fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and legumes, and decrease our consumption of animal-based foods. And you could imagine that with current trends of pollinator decline, the health effects will be much, much larger than they are today. And so the trajectory is really going in the wrong direction. We also looked at a few example countries. We looked at Nigeria and Honduras and Nepal to ask not only the health question, but the economic question. How much are these countries losing in terms of economic value? And we found you know, large reduction, something like 13 to 31%, depending on the country, of agricultural productivity was lost from not having enough pollinators. So these pollinators are providing this enormously important free service, both economic service and health service for the global population. And yet, because of our activities, 
they're really declining around the world. Where do you think the main responsibility lies in terms of taking action in this field? Is it with the individual or with the governments and institutions? Well, I, I think we all need to be doing everything that we can. It's hard to overstate the urgency of this particular moment that we find ourselves. There's, there's never been another moment like this one in human history where the scale of our ecological footprint has ballooned so fast over the last several decades and where we're on a trajectory which is inconsistent with human survival or the survival of, of most other species on the planet. And so we need a very rapid, deep structural shift in how we're living to address that problem. How do you affect that rapid, deep structural shift that we call the great transition? Well, it's going to take everybody. It's going to take all of us as consumers and the general public understanding that how we manage our planet's natural systems is a matter of urgent self-interest. We need to put pressure on our governments for enlightened policies and a regulatory environment that helps companies to do the right thing, that prices externalities appropriately. And we need a private sector that is taking on this moment that we're in and shifting the way it does business. So it's really sort of three legs of a stool that all, you know, everybody needs to hold everybody else accountable. If consumers are demanding that companies change the way they do business, then that's actually good for those businesses. And it actually helps to start pricing externalities. When a new company like Possible Foods or Beyond Meat starts to produce a vegetable-based meat substitute that tastes good and people are buying it in part because not only is it better for their health, but it's much better for the planet and therefore for the health of all people everywhere, then that creates a signal for those businesses to do the right thing. Then the, you know, governments are going to need to hear from their people. Governments never lead, right? It's the people that force governments to lead. And so, and many of the problems that we face are what Marshall Gans would call power problems. They're problems of you know, legislative capture by exploitative industries that need to be confronted by power and that takes collective action. And so I think more than sort of our individual behaviors, which certainly matter, we need to be coming together to put pressure on governments and on industry to do the right thing. In your experience, what are some steps that we can take to raise awareness at the individual level? Because not all of us are aware of the current dangers. Well, that's part of the reason we've created the Planetary Health Alliance. So we certainly, we welcome individual membership. It doesn't cost anything. So people can come to the Planetary Health Alliance um, website and look at, you know, the information there. We have a, a technology platform called Hilo, which allows people to come together and find each other by geography or by interest area or by what sector of society you're in and have conversation. We host an annual meeting every year that brings people together. We had 5,000 uh, people uh, registered for our last meeting from 130 countries around the world. So it was a big coming together. So there's you know, that's one of the things we've tried to do with the Planetary Health Alliance is to create both a, a place where people can learn more, but also where people can find um, community. I think it's really a question of define what you're passionate 
about and what your talents are, and then identify your communities where you live or on the internet. It's much easier in some ways to be engaged in collective action than it ever has been because we can work all around the world with each other. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by these problems. In fact, it only takes maybe 1% of the world's populations taking these issues seriously to have the extraordinary rapid kind of paradigm shift that we really need to solve this problem. So I would say, don't be despairing, be activated and go out and find your partner and work together and certainly come to the Planetary Health Alliance and, and can be part of a community there, but there, there are other communities obviously as well. Well, that's so wonderful because, you know, in speaking, and as I know you do at, at Harvard, speaking to a lot of students, there is that climate anxiety. And so having organizations that helps empower people and helps them effectively mobilize when they feel a little powerless in the face of what do you prioritize? There's so many things to do. And we're looking forward to COP26. I was wondering what your feelings are about what to prioritize, what you hope might be achieved. I will be at COP26 just because it's, it's such an enormous meeting that I think it's a hard place to actually get a lot of work done. And we have a very, very small team. So, but we certainly have lots of partners who will be there. I think in a way there's a misconception that COP26 is, or that the COP meetings in general are where leadership happens where we see the world move towards addressing climate change. And in my own opinion, the COP meetings are a snapshot of where the world already is. They're a snapshot of what the constituencies of each one of these sort of countries' governments are pushing their governments to do. It's very rare that country will get way out ahead of its own population, at least in democratic countries, because they'll just get voted out of office. And so it's why I say that in many ways, leadership begins with the people and COP is kind of like a, a snapshot of, well, where have the people gotten to? And I think what's exciting is that the people have moved a lot in the last for years, certainly in my country, in the United States, but I think all over the world, the, the level of awareness and urgency about addressing not just the climate problem, but right before COP26 was the COP15 meeting on global biodiversity in Kunming, China, the UN global food system meeting also just happened this fall. And so all of these sort of planetary health issues are being understood with a lot more urgency. and. There's a very interesting thing happening in the world right now, which is this series of what have been sort of discrete environmental conversations. For 30 years, there's been a climate conversation. There's been a biodiversity conversation and conversations about pollution, about oceans, about desertification. I think that right now, in, in part with the planetary health frame, we're awakening to the fact that these are all actually part of a single conversation that is no longer about the environment. It's about social justice and human survival. And that the scale of our ecological footprint simply surpasses our planet's capacities. And so this sort of across the board disruption of natural systems is not just threatening these particular environmental parameters, but is in fact 
threatening our own survival and that there are also enormous environmental justice dimensions to those impacts in terms of who's most affected by accelerating environmental change. I think that's certainly true as we look back, I guess, 50th year or so, 51 years of Earth Day. And, and these movements were seen maybe in America as being almost not elite, but one it's, you know, was hugely successful that first Earth Day, but so many people, millions coming into the street. But it was also seen as the preserve of people who might have had the luxury to think in this garden that they live in. And we know that those most deeply in, impacted are those in, you know, developing or third world countries. But I know that that's changing and the, the mindset, as you say, it's one of survival. It's not an aesthetic luxury that it might have been viewed as in the past. I hear though, what I love is that I get a lot of positive messages. As you say, it can come from the grassroots and people like Hans Joseph Fell of the Energy Watch Group and the Green Party in Germany uh, says that it's possible. I don't know, because this is very ambitious, it's possible to achieve 100% renewable energy in a decade. That's what he says. I, I don't... He lives a very, he's, he's himself 100% renewable. I mean, what are your feelings or what are some of the positive solutions that you must come across in your research? Yeah, well, so again, I want to emphasize that renewable energy is only a part of this equation. So for me, it's not just a climate conversation. It's a planetary health broader conversation. And so even if we were able to transition in a decade to entirely zero carbon energy sources, miraculous and wonderful as that would be, it wouldn't solve our biodiversity problem. It wouldn't solve all of our pollution and resource scarcity problems. So there, there's a th this deeper problem of just the scale of our net ecological footprint. But to your question, I don't think we can overemphasize how much hope there is here. There is an absolutely rich terrain of solutions across every dimension that I've talked about. You know, if you think about food systems, just the protein revolution that's taking place right now is so exciting to me. The fact that Burger King and McDonald's and, you know, these sort of fast food franchises that have enormous market share are selling vegetable-based burgers, not because they're trying to save the world, but because they've become so immensely popular. And we're able to create synthetic milk and eggs out of proteins that are identical, literally the identical amino acid sequence of protein and eggs from chickens and cows using protein fermentation processes. And that there are ways that we can essentially replace all of animal livestock effectively and still have foods that for most consumers taste as good or better than what you would get from a livestock source. And when you think about that and you recognize that right now, 40% of the entire terrestrial land surface of the planet is dedicated to croplands or pasture. Of that, most of it is pasture for livestock. And of the croplands, most of the croplands are producing grain to feed the livestock. And so if you got rid of livestock agriculture as a central part of feeding human beings, 
you could free up an enormous share of the terrestrial land service for the rest of biodiversity. So that's just one small example of something that's happening really quickly right now. And that's a very rapidly expanding sector of the food economy. There's a huge amount to be done in sustainable intensification of food production. So apart from that, you know, thinking about precision agriculture, thinking about agroecological approaches. So in the food system space, there are enormous efficiencies that can be realized that we already understand how to do and that are already underway. We've talked about renewable energy. Certainly that's happening really quickly, whether it will happen in 10 years, you know, we can argue about that, but it is happening really quickly in the decade that ended in 2010, a third of new energy production was renewable in the decade that ended 2020, two thirds of new energy production globally was renewable. So that's a huge shift in a short period of time. And now for two thirds of the world's population, renewable energy is cheaper than fossil fuel-based energy. And so that, again, it's the economics that are driving that, but it's hugely, hugely important. And, you know, the same thing for circular economy, for urban design and building cities that are being built instead of building them around automobiles and building them around bike lanes and walking and greener cities. So there really are a lot of things to do. And I think this idea of an aspirational future is one that our community, the environmental community has been way too slow to understand its importance that I think the environmental community has been guilty of a lot of catastrophism, a lot of statements like game over for the planet. And we've painted a lot of very dark pictures about where we're going. But when you look across these different sectors and all of the solutions that are out there, there's no reason to believe that our grandchildren couldn't live in an incredibly exciting world, in a world where you know, human population is right now starting to stabilize, and it's actually going to start trending down just as a result of key demographic trends, as a result of educating girls and providing economic opportunities for women and access to contraception for couples who want it. And we're already seeing that, that flattening and bending of the curve on human population. We know how to produce food with dramatically fewer ecological inputs. We know how to design cities that are greener and, and pleasanter places for us to live. So, so much of what we need to do, we know how to do it. We can imagine a world in which with every passing decade, there's actually more breathing room for the rest of the biosphere and where health parameters look better than they've ever looked for education parameters. So it's really not so much a question of, can we solve these problems? It's, it's become a question of, will we, do we have the political will around the world to make these sort of deep, rapid structural shifts that we need to get on the right trajectory? My name is Christina Popa. I'm an environmental engineer, a recent graduate from Northwestern University in Chicago and an associate interviews producer for the Creative Process podcast. It's become evident that we are facing changes in weather patterns, from drought and wildfires to ravaging flood events happening worldwide. Dr. Samuel Myers and his team at the Planetary Health Alliance 
take these issues even further and study how our activities not only disrupt natural systems, but also how they impact our health. By following the links between intensified agriculture, water scarcity, loss in biodiversity, and public health, Dr. Myers and his team expand the climate change discussion to a planetary health one. I find conversations like the interview with Dr. Myers extremely important to raise awareness about this issue so that people can find their own place on this path with research in the planetary health field showing how interconnected the biosphere and our health are. I realized that this could be a way to make a problem that might seem abstract, like we're impacting the planet, to something more concrete, like we're impacting our health. One of the things I related to was the idea that individuals like you and me are driving the change by sharing ideas and creating communities that put pressure where needed. I often hear people saying, I'm just one person, I cannot change anything. I've lived in three different countries with just as many approaches to sustainability. In my experience, most of the work boils down to the people taking small actions. And there are so many different ways to minimize our ecological footprint, from the solar panels we install on our roofs, to the vegetarian burgers we choose to eat, or the bike we ride to work instead of our car. Now back to the interview. There's so much put into AI, and I know that its technology is, you know, is serving us well. And many, I would like to see that more effectively concentrating on the planetary health as opposed to just finding new ways to distract us. And I don't mean to bring back in this note of catastrophism, as you mentioned, but, you know, you do, we have read about amping up of fossil fuel and coal production. I, I find incredible, and I'm I'm hoping that will be balanced because we know it's even more, without subsidies, it's even more expensive than renewable. So I wonder what your feelings are uh, about that. It just kind of breaks my heart with all the advances like is, with the, your alliance is doing and everything when I read those statistics. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not telling you, I'm not going to be Pollyanna-ish. I'm not telling you that everything is, is rosy and is going to be rosy. I mean, I, I've painted an aspirational future. So that's what we're hoping for. I could paint an apocalyptic future, and I think that's possible too. This is the drama of the moment that we're in right now. And it's an extraordinary drama. Which way are we going to go? Which future are we going to choose? And it all comes down to the decisions that we make over the next, this generation. So it's, it's quite extraordinary how much is really at stake. And I agree with you that the current sort of energy situation is alarming, but goodness, I mean, if we're trying to ask the entire world to transition very, very rapidly to a completely new energy system, of course, we're going to hit some blips, you know, along the way and some of the energy shortages that we're seeing right now and the sort of ramping up of some fossil fuel use, I think needs to be understood in that context. But I agree with you. It's, it's very concerning and we need to do more across the board to really ease that transition to renewables as quickly as we can. I've been reading research saying that politicians mostly use research and scientific information to back already made political decisions and not as the kernel for developing them. What is your experience related to that? And do you think the pandemic changed that? Well, 
I don't know the answer to that question. I, I suspect you're right. I certainly know that we've learned from behavioral scientists that simply doing the science and then expecting the world to respond to the science and change practices doesn't work. I think the pandemic's been pretty interesting with respect to science because we've seen countries that take science seriously be dramatically more effective in suppressing the pandemic than countries like the United States and Brazil, which have had nationalist leadership until the last election in the United States that was pointedly skeptical of anything scientific and made decisions that made absolutely no sense from a scientific standpoint that were against the advice of the professional scientists who were in the health domains. And it's led to a ton of excess mortality. In fact, there was a story about Laura Burks, who was advising President Trump during the pandemic, saying that tens of thousands of lives were cost as a result of those bad decisions. And, you know, you see Bolsonaro in Brazil right now being charged for I think manslaughter for failing to take the pandemic seriously and institute the right policies. Other governments like in New Zealand and many other places in the world, we've seen the science taken very seriously and, and lives were saved. So the question now is in retrospect, when people look back on that, will it raise the stature of science-based policy since it's been so stark to see that it literally is killing thousands and thousands of people not to take the science seriously. I'm afraid we haven't seen that across the Republican party in the United States. We're still seeing these huge movements around anti-vaccination, around not wearing masks. So science hasn't fully penetrated in our country, but I think regardless, we always have known that science alone is not enough. And that's why I say there are power problems here that aren't just about making the facts clear. They're about making the power clear. So Marshall Gans distinguishes between power problems and knowledge problems. Knowledge problems, science makes a big difference. Power problems, you actually need to push on these companies. I mean, look at the disinformation campaigns that the you know, fossil fuel industry has run for years against the science. So you know, they've known the science, but they've pretended that they didn't and spread misinformation. So those are power problems that need to be addressed with collective action. And speaking of, you know, we're talking about all these changes that need to, you know, to take place. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Why did you choose to focus your research on the intersection between human health and global environmental change? I, you know, that's a hard question to answer because it's always been so, I mean, I've been very, very interested in, in nature and environmental science since I was in high school and college. I was also very interested in human physiology and biology and was conflicted about what to do coming out of college and ultimately ended up choosing to go to medical school where there's also a very strong school of forestry and environmental science at Yale and spent a lot of time, you know, going between the medical school and the environmental science school. And then I spent you know, I did my medicine residency, but I lived in Tibet for two years, field managing an integrated conservation and health project. 
I worked for USAID for two years. I worked for Conservation International for two years, all really at the same intersection of natural resource management, human health and population issues. And ultimately, I felt like doing this work at the level of sort of projects in different countries wasn't going to get us where we needed to go in time, that the scale and the pace of our disruption of nature was so great that we really needed a sort of global awakening and we needed a whole field kind of focused on how our disruption of nature is coming back to affect our own health and well-being. And so I came back to Harvard and did a clinical research fellowship, did my master's of public health, learned how to do epidemiologic research and started my research career, but then also became very involved in 2014 with first Rockefeller Lancet Commission on Planetary Health. And that was sort of the birth of this field of planetary health. And when we released this report in 2015, and that's made it possible to sort of have a robust field that's been growing very, very quickly around the world, courses and journals and degree programs and initiatives. As that field's grown, it's also been possible to try to take the new knowledge and the frameworks that are emerging from that field and inject them into the domains of policy, private sector, the general public to help the world understand really what's at stake as we make these decisions about how we live. And so I've just kind of followed my own interests in that process, both from the research standpoint of really saying we need an evidence base to show what the health implications of these biophysical changes are, but also we need a field and a movement really focused on putting pressure on governments and industry to help us shift how we're living. Well, exactly. It really helps us focus our priorities. I feel like when the, they say that our skin is in the game, our pub, our our personal health is affected, then it, it becomes that much more vital. And I'm wondering, you know, with your travels in Tibet and USAID and, you know, you must have amazing experiences of the beauty and wonder of the natural world, apart from, you know, what we do to um, contaminate it. I you know what are some of those memories? The memories that I have of connecting to the beauty of the natural world go back to, you know, right back to my childhood in New England. And it's obviously a very personal question. And there are very specific memories I can ha I can remember of being on certain, you know, mountain creeks in the White Mountains in New Hampshire or in a place on a salt marsh you know, on Cape Cod, where I would be sort of overcome with a sense, almost losing myself and feeling like I was part of something much bigger than myself. And I think as I grew up, the, the words that best sort of approximate that feeling are, you know, reverence or awe. They're words that come out of sort of religious traditions. And I, I don't really have a specific religious, religious tradition myself, but they're spiritual feelings. And that's why I say that I think for most people in the world experience some degree of something like that reverence or awe in their own particular natural settings. And so many of us feel that. And yet those feelings have somehow really lost their authority to guide our decisions, you know, how did it become okay to treat our oceans 
and our atmosphere as gigantic garbage bins. Now, how did it become okay to drive life forms off the planet, to just extinguish them? And those to me are sort of spiritual failings that somehow there's been a rupture in our relationship to nature. And it's why I say that just as there are critical roles for the natural scientists, economists, policy experts, I think there really also are critical roles for our writers and poets and artists and faith leaders and certainly indigenous knowledge systems in sort of re-energizing the way we relate to the natural world and helping us to have sort of a renaissance in understanding what actually makes us happy and reconnecting us to nature. And I think that's also part of this great transition that we need to be in. Yes, a, a sense of awe. In, we, yes, we, we need this huge interdisciplinary conversations as you have with the Planetary Health Alliance. And we need to be open to the, the beauty of the natural world to learn from it. Because I think as sophisticated as we are, and we'll have to use our brains to think our way and solve our way out of the what uh, our current issues. But it seems like the natural world and natural ecosystems really has a way of valuing everything, even the, the smallest bacteria. They respect that we're all part of a huge organism and we could learn much from that. So in closing, as you reflect on the future, education, planetary health, you know, what lessons have been important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think the lesson that's dawned on me slowly as I've really explored this field, we, we wrote a sort of first textbook of this field last year. And as you sort of take stock of the moment that we're in, which is, it's almost hard to wrap your head around that moment and it's sort of enormity and what's at stake is how unique this moment is, how really extraordinary it is and how much is at stake, but also how much promise there is if we can get it right. And so when I talk with students, particularly big groups of undergraduates who haven't even decided what they're going to do for their careers, I emphasize that there's a role for absolutely everybody in the great transition, as I said, you know, whether it's our artists or our economists or, you know, urban planners or natural scientists or policymakers or people wanting to go into business and create businesses that are consistent with planetary health across the board, there's a rule for everybody. And so it's really all about what we decide to do over the next sort of 20 years. And there couldn't be a more sort of exciting and fascinating time to be alive to really try to address these challenges because we're in the middle of just this, this enormous drama. So it's important to recognize what's at stake, but not to be sort of despairing about it, but to sort of roll up our sleeves and really see if we can move the world in the direction that we need to go. Absolutely. We're all looking for something that gives our life meaning and there couldn't be a more important time uh, to get involved and do our part. So thank you, Professor Samuel Myers and the Planetary Health Alliance for sharing your insights, dedication and commitment to caring not just about this planet, but for working tirelessly towards safeguarding our health and well-being. Everything is connected and what we do to the world comes back to affect us. 
We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your devotion to the ecosystems we're dependent on and for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Mia, for your time. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Christina Popa. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.